the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is, already, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit in Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, Andrew, thank you for your kind invitation and your warm welcome. This morning, as we come to this wonderful letter, which is considered to be the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith in existence. You'll remember Peter was now coming to the end of his life. 
You'll recall that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he went to Galilee and he appeared to his disciples and even had breakfast with them. Peter, ever conscious uh, of his denial of his master, needed to understand that he'd been forgiven. Three times he was asked uh, whether he loved the Lord Jesus to the point that he was hurt by the repeated question, but he knew that he was now reconciled to his master. Then Jesus, having told him to feed my sheep, went on to say, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. Jesus said this, we're told, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So the great shepherd of the sheep about to return to his father leaves Peter with, feed my sheep and follow me. But you and I would doubtless say, now, wait a moment, what about my death? But there was not a further word on that subject, except the only word that really mattered, namely, that in his death he would glorify God. So in this letter, Peter, after establishing his credentials and apostolic authority, cuts straight to the chase and greets the followers of Christ as elect and chosen. I don't know if you remember shivering in the cold while standing in a group of school children while two of the more athletic members of your class selected their team and your relief when you were chosen ahead of those who had pebble glasses and two left feet. Great thing to be elected, especially by God, a God who even before he made the world chose you in Christ, a God who sanctifies us through the work of his spirit and cleanses us by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ a process which commences the moment you become a believer in Jesus and finishes the day you go to glory. You know that story of Michelangelo working on a huge lion's head, and somebody said, how do you do that? He said, it's very simple. You take a chisel and you take a mallet and you chip away at anything that doesn't look like a lion. And that is what the Spirit of God is doing with us. He's constantly chipping away at anything that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. And we need to discover that God has to do far more in us than through us. And one of the things that God uses to accomplish this work is the vicissitudes of life, all the trials and the sadnesses, the disappointments and frustrations that we have to contend with in this muddled and broken world world. And one of the great lessons we must learn is you must never let yourself talk to you. You must always talk to yourself. And so uh, this is what happens with the psalmist. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so these situations can be painful, 
Dear old C.S. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live it in himself. But wonderful as it is to be chosen, and that is a marvelous thing. Can you imagine God chose you? Just have a look at, you know, don't look at your neighbors, please. But he chose you even before he made this world. But the reverse of the coin is also true, that the recipients of this letter were also strangers. And they were scattered through Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, as we've already heard. And in verse 17, Peter said, live your life as strangers here in reverent fear. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. But how anxious we are to settle down in this world, to cozy up to its culture and manner of life and futile thinking, to find ourselves so quickly distracted and diverted as we pass through Vanity Fair on our way to the celestial city. How easy it is to forget that this is not our home, that we're passing this way but once, and we're going on to a glorious inheritance but as we go, Peter insists, we are but strangers and even aliens. I read a piece the other day of Don Carson in which he said, even many Christians think of their faith almost exclusively in terms of what it does for them now, rather in terms of preparing for eternity, such that it transforms how they live now. So what were these people, the elect of God, doing in this dispersion in Asia Minor? Scattered through persecution and much else, far from the land of their fathers. And the answer is very simple. They were serving the purpose of God. What was Peter doing in Rome, far from the Galilee and the lake of his youth, and now old and waiting the day when he would stretch out his hands, when someone else would dress him, and lead him where he didn't want to go. But as he goes to whatever death it was, he was serving the purpose of God. As in life, so in death, he was to glorify God. And I wonder whether this is true of us, living and working where we are. What is our raison d'etre? Peter sums up his reason for being in chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. 
Amen. So we have here having grace and peace in abundance. Have you noticed that? In abundance. God doesn't stint. He's a great giver. Mr. Newton, in his great hymn, you are coming to a king, large petitions to him bring. For his power and grace are such, none can ever ask too much. And uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the debtor's ethic. You know, you have us round to supper. And six months later, we say, goodness me, we haven't had the Smiths back. So we have the Smiths back for supper, and we feel much better. And we start to treat God like that. What can I do for God? Think of what he's done for me. What can I do for him? My friend, you can do nothing for God. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. But what you can do is to make demands upon him. I often think God must wonder, why don't they ask me? You know the joy every father has in giving to children and grandchildren. Give, if I offer you something, you'll be embarrassed. Oh, oh no, no, really, I, I mustn't. You do that with a child by, that comes through the door, they got the wrapping paper off before you know what's happened. And their hearts are filled with joy and you're delighted to give to your father. And God delights to give. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So remember this, my friend, come to God who loves to give and ask him that he will bless us. So having done that, he goes on to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This God who elects, who sanctifies, who cleanses, who in his mercy has given us new birth and a living hope in raising Jesus from the dead and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. And through faith it is shielded not by some agency, but by God's power that will be revealed in the last time. And Edward Clooney in his excellent commentary says, we are kept, however, through faith. Peter has described God's saving faith for us. God keeps his finished salvation for us and us for his salvation. But he does not keep us in a cage or against our will. God who works for us also works in us. Our faith is his way of keeping it. It is a gift. Why does God use faith as the instrument of his keeping power? Because faith is not our achievement, but is our trust in God's achievement. Your faith and hope are in God, Peter tells us. Dear old John Stotts reminds us that faith is the noun corresponding to the verb believe and belief is the action of trusting. And the great challenge is, in what are we all trusting? Dear old Edwin Mote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But then comes verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, and listen to this, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And when was this written? Probably a little before that most appalling persecution unleashed against believers. Nero was in Rome and on the throne. And Peter, in writing in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Now Peter knew what a capricious and unhinged king Nero was. And yet he shows, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Have you noticed that these great saints never whinged or complained or griped? Why? Well, Peter had a model, one who suffered and left him an example that he and we should follow. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. God has little use for grudging attitudes. And you have asked where this amazing calm, this peace came from. It came from committing everything into the hands of him who judges righteously. And so he can write this letter in the midst of uncertainty and the gathering storm clouds that would bring turmoil and furore. So we need to understand that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might hope. And to go back 600 years as Habakkuk is in Jerusalem. We've spoken of the devastation of Rome and the fire. And now Habakkuk is in Jerusalem. And uh, that is about to be destroyed and sacked. He knows the Chaldeans are coming. And he says, the horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. The cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. And then he goes on to say, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. What a man.
And so we have these wonderful examples in Scripture that are there to encourage us. Do you remember what the psalmist has to say? Put not your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. But then he says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, the God of history, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Seven times the Lord, the Lord. And this was the great hope of this psalmist. Happy or blessed is he whose God is the God of Jacob. So my friend, we must understand that uh, nothing in this world can frustrate the work of God. There is no wisdom, there's no insight, there's no plan that can seed against the Lord, the Lord who works everything to his own ends. And what is the explanation of people like Habakkuk and Peter facing disaster? For Peter, it's in verse 3. He has a living hope because Jesus has risen from the dead. His letter is a letter of hope. He knows his friends are struggling up in Asia Minor. The hope he speaks of is not a fond hope, fond because it's fragile. We hope against hope because we don't really expect what we hope for. But this is a sure hope, a hope that holds the present because it is anchored in the past, because God has already accomplished his salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then in verse 6 we have, in this you greatly rejoice, or in whom you greatly rejoice. And in verse 8 we have an inexpressible and glorious joy as we wait the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And when will this be? When salvation is revealed in the last time, when Jesus is revealed on the day that he will receive praise and glory and honor, a day that will bring either joy or terror, terror for those who don't know the Lord, and joy beyond all expression for those who love him. So John in his writing says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One day, my friend, we're going to see the Savior. And Scripture assumes if we understand that, the impact upon our lives will be massive. We're actually going to look at him, and he's going to look at us. That is the glorious hope of the believer in Jesus. Small wonder he has this inexpressible joy. But times can be difficult. And dear old William Cowper says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy. 
and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And dear old C.S. Lewis says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning, that morning without clouds, when the Savior will return and we'll have the great joy of actually seeing him and he us. So may this encourage us and may we be grateful in our hearts when you think of the way God has blessed us, that even before he made this world, he chose us in Christ. Small wonder that we're called upon to have this living hope and to have this inexpressible joy in the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.